This is VOCM News Talk. Call 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. The views and opinions of this program are not necessarily those of this station. Here's VOCM News Talk host Linda Swain. And good afternoon, everyone. Well, there is a demonstration planned in Corner Brook tomorrow to protest the federal government's plans to reopen the redfish fishery in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Now, on the surface, the reopening of the fishery was, uh, you know, welcomed by a lot of people, but it is not what it appears. Uh, the fishery is being reopened with a heavy emphasis on the offshore factory freezer fleet. The MHA for Corner Brook came out swinging today, and as you'll hear, he didn't pull any punches in his assessment of the situation on VOCM Open Line with Patty Daly this morning. Here's the here's the nexus, the connection between the shrimp licenses and the quota. And the connection is conservation. And I say that very, very deliberately, Patty, because here's here's really where the conversation needs to begin. Is what have we learned from this decision? What have we learned from our past mistakes as a country? Uh, when it comes to ground fish, with the collapse of the northern cod fishery, with the collapse of ground fish all over Atlantic Canada, have we learned anything in the last 30 years? Here's what we know to be true. When you create capacity, when you build brand new capacity that's out, out of step with the resource itself, you create this insatiable appetite, the political demand for more fish. And you know what? In its opening salvo, that's what the federal minister of DFO has already done. She said, listen, don't worry about this. It's going to be okay because I'm saying it's going to be 25,000 metric tons as a beginning. But, you know, this is going to go to 75,000 tons. And guess what? Your 10% of that 75,000 tons, you should be okay by the time it gets 75,000 tons because your 10% is going to be 7,500 tons. Well, guess what happens whenever you do that? You create more and more and more demand. And here is where I have a real problem with the intellectual and moral uh, dishonesty uh, of Ottawa in all of this is that when you have an existing fleet, you do not have to build brand new boats. You do not have to build brand new plants. You do not have to bring in temporary foreign workers to, man to operate those plants. When you have an existing fleet that can prosecute that fishery responsibly, as it has done in the, in, in the last number of years, you do not create this insatiable appetite to surrender more and more quota to keep those brand new factory freezer trawlers, which you built using government money, as what the federal minister has already said she's prepared to do, spend $50 million of taxpayer money to help build brand new factory freezer trawlers to prosecute a fishery for which there's already an existing fleet that can do this and plants on the west coast of Newfoundland that can process this and, and, and plant workers on the west coast of Newfoundland, 70% of whom are indigenous, who can, uh, who can process this. What the strategy of the federal government is this, simply put, let's do it all over again. Let's build brand new capacity, build brand new plants, and let's start this all over again. And that is why I say and say very deliberately and vote no confidence in the Federal Department of Fisheries and Oceans 
They are intellectually incompetent. They are morally discrepant. And I cannot understand for one reason why. Patty, listen, this is the 21st century. If I were to say to you, this is just, how do we argue to get more for the sake of getting more? I think people are all sick of that. I'm sick of it. You're sick of it. Everyone's sick of these debates about, how do I just argue to get more for the sake of getting more? I am sick of that. What I'm saying to everyone, this is an argument based on the foundation of conservation, of uh, the right thing to do for the right reasons. Do not allow brand new factory factory freezer trawlers to be built, to be paid for uh, using government money, to be built in Romania or Estonia, not even in Canadian fish uh, shipyards. Don't let plants sit idle while we argue about a stock that can support every one of those boats. What are we arguing about now? A government paid for a uh, buy, license buyout. Tell me where that makes any sense. Every one of those boats could be viable on this resource. End of story. Fair enough. If we go back to trying to replicate what led to the shutdown of the fishery in 1976, of course, that would be a terrible idea. You know, and the federal minister, Le Boutier, trying to defend some of these allocation decisions based on the percentage, historically, the percentage of the redfish being fished by the the factory freezer trawlers or the offshore fleet. You know, back then it was 74%, now down to 58%. That's not really a defense if we're building more capacity on the harvesting side, unnecessarily so. If the boats are in place and the plants are in place to execute a fishery of 25,000 tonnes, then why would we try to bring in any new entrant, period, regardless of what we're talking about? You know, we've got a problem here with the shrimp license and the value of, but even if we're talking about any species and the total allowable catch and what ends up with individual quotas, adding capacity to the harvesting side has proven to be a bad idea, period. We talked about it in 1992. The concept was too many boats going after too few fish, too many plants going after too few fish. There's some, I think some of that is a bit of a myth, but some of it is absolutely true. So we're going to replicate a problem that led us to 76 and 92. I don't get it. Uh, anything else quick on that front before I have a quick question? about Here is the lie of omission. If DFO, if the minister, federal minister, was advised of this fact... and she didn't follow it, shame on her. If the Department of Fisheries and Oceans did not advise her of this fact, shame on the entire Department of Fisheries and Oceans, why I vote no confidence in the Department of Fisheries and Oceans. Here is the fact. 1976, Federal Fisheries Minister Romeo LeBlanc created a policy that said inshore fishers from the Gulf receive 100% of the quota up to 30,000 metric tons. And then Paul Debane, uh, Pierre Debane, the Minister of Fisheries and Oceans in 1984, reiterated that decision and increased it to 40,000 tons. So if you really want to talk historical attachment, go beyond 1993. A federal liberal government, two federal liberal cabinet ministers made a declaration that the Gulf of St. Lawrence redfish stock was 100% to be owned by the adjacent fishers of the Gulf of St. Lawrence and banned factory freezer trawlers in their entirety from the Gulf and setting a minimum cap of 30 and then 40,000 metric tons, 100% for the Gulf fleet. I say history should prevail. 
So that's some of what uh, Jerry Byrne, who is the MHA for Corner Brook, had to say on VOCM Open Line this morning. Uh, not pulling any punches there, accusing Ottawa of um, uh, being morally um, uh, on the wrong side here. So um, I'd like to hear what others have to say. We're going to hear from Greg Pretty of the FFAW when we come back right after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Your voice in Newfoundland and Labrador's biggest conversation. If you want to know what's happening in your province, tune in to Open Line every day. Have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m. on Open Line with Patty Daly on your VOCM. And we are back. Well, you heard what uh, Jerry Byrne had to say about the uh, federal government's plans for the redfish fishery in the Gulf of St. Lawrence. Um, And... uh, uh, there's a demonstration now planned in Corner Brook for tomorrow. Uh, the FFAW's Greg Pretty, as you know, has also been crying foul on Ottawa's decision. And here's what he has to say. Well, Greg Pretty, uh, you've ha- heard what uh, Jerry Byrne had to say. What's your response to that? Well, Jerry is right. He understands the situation. He represents communities. He represents harvesters. And by the way, Elvis Loveless too, and the Premier, they understand the significance of what Ottawa did. They've pulled a rug on us. So when Jerry says they're morally bankrupt, then he is correct. Because what's happened here is in is 180 degrees from what Romeo LeBlanc said in St. John's in 1977 when he said and i'll quote who gets the first crack at at fish here i must say i have a clear bias towards inshore fishermen not because of some romantic regard not because of his picture on calendars but because he cannot travel far after fish because he depends on fishing for his income because his community in turn depends on the fishery being protected and what's happened here that's romeo leblanc but what's happened here is that they've 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 deserted those principles, and what they're about to do, if 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 left alone, will transfer that redfish resource in Forer on the west coast of Newfoundland to other interests in Nova Scotia and to the offshore draggers once again. And let me remind everybody that they were booted out because they cleaned up the entire stock back in the seventies. So there's a history here that they are ignoring. They choose to ignore. They chose, they have, they have weighted their averages, they've weighted their support, and they've picked sides here. And the losers are Newfoundland communities, the Halapu, our members, processing and harvesting. That's, those are the losers here. Harvesters in New Brunswick will also lose and Quebec, and we'll pass it on to the offshore companies absolutely outrageous decision that has to be reversed. We all know you were talking about history, of course, and we all know what happened with the cod stocks. We know what happened with the redfish. Uh, Is this a sustainable model that the federal government is setting up here? No, of course not. And all they had to do was read their books, read their notes, read their meeting notes. This has happened before. We didn't wait 30 years for the stock to rebuild so that that same crowd could get at it again and destroy it. I mean, that is completely senseless. And by the way, as a bit of a history lesson, if I ever get the chance to meet the minister again, you know, we fished. We fished redfish. Newfoundland fished redfish. They fished it in the Gulf. Galtus, Burgio, Ramia, Harbour Breton. 
all had interest in redfish long prior to, to 77. And, and to ignore that history and to award, to give away, to transition the resource, to give away the resource to offshore companies, who, by the way, don't, as I'm told, don't even have vessels. They're going to build vessels to do it. Well, well that's just crazy because we have, we have the harvesting, uh, as Jerry said, we have the harvesting ability. We have the processing ability. So what it is, is it's just simply that they're, they're robbing from workers to give to the rich. And that's where it is. And that cannot stand in this country. Those principles cannot stand in this country. We had a redfish plant on Bell Island, if I recall. Um, so uh, any luck now in uh, securing this meeting with the minister? Not yet. The request is in and, and other parties will be seeking re- uh, meeting requests with the minister. Nothing so far. I am surprised that our federal MPs haven't said one single word on this that I can see from viewing the media since the announcement back in uh, late January. And I think uh, it's time for them to, to come out out front. And you're either with us or you're against us, but at least say something about this travesty that's occurring in this uh, in this province. All brought on not by principles of resource or adjacency, but because somebody interfered. There are no socioeconomic conditions on this transfer. It's pure greed. It's pure money. It's more money to the people who already have it. So it's obvious, Linda, that there's a fair amount of money, despite what's being said, with Redfish, and they want it, and they want it all. Well, it's not going to work. Greg Pretty, I do appreciate your time. Thank you. Linda, once again, any time. Thank you. And it's our understanding that a demonstration is planned in Corner Brook tomorrow involving uh, the union, Jerry Byrne, and uh, Provincial Fisheries Minister Elvis Lovelace. Jerry Byrne accusing Ottawa of moral dishonesty. The FFAW President Greg Pretty indicating that somebody interfered. Well, the Provincial Transportation Minister provided an update today on roadwork plans for the coming construction season. John Abbott spoke to the Heavy Civil Association's AGM at the Sheraton Hotel this afternoon. He also also had a chat with VOCM's Brian Callahan. Here's uh, some of that conversation. Well, we're uh, right now trying to finalize our road plan, and uh, that will be allow us to start issuing tenders. Uh, the final amount that will be in the budget uh, when that's announced uh, this spring, uh, so that will allow us uh, then to uh, roll out more tenders uh, as well. So we're uh, we're very optimistic that we can get uh, those tenders out over there between now and, uh, or I should say, later in February uh, to, to to May month, similar to what we did last year. Yeah, that was kind of one of the biggest, uh, bigger issues last year about the need for multi-year and also the need for this larger pot and getting them out earlier. So how much, you know, people might just wonder, so they are earlier this year than, than past years? Yes, they have been. And uh, we which is certainly I share with the interests of the uh, the uh, Heavy Civil uh, Association is that we get a better result, better pricing if uh, we can provide them with as much lead time as, as possible. Uh, and two aspects of that, one is that we can commit to multi-year funding so they can map out their, their program and their resources and then we can provide uh, early tenders so that allows them to plan 
uh, earlier in the construction season to get their teams in place, their equipment in place, and any other resources. And um, we're doing work right up until uh, late fall, uh, most years in any event, so we can get a longer construction uh, season as a result. So you listed off a slew of programs, projects that are on the go, that are on the table for this year. One, of course, that people are, you know, probably most be most interested in anything on the Trans-Canada Highway is a big interest. Um, just update me on the situation with the twinning in Whitburn and the twinning in Central Newfoundland. Well, that's a priority for us. Uh, we've got secured federal funding uh, separate uh, for that uh, project. Uh, we are now with the external advisors uh, to look at the design and other elements of that work. Uh, once we have that done, then we'll be in the position to get proposal calls uh, ready and issue to, to move forward. Uh, this essentially divided highways in those areas. Can you can you specify where they'll start and where they'll end? So, uh, in terms of the two uh, projects in particular that uh, make up the 300 uh, plus million dollars, uh, we will continue the divided highway from Whitburn uh, as far west maybe as Southern Harbor. So that's going to be depending on cost uh, as far how west we go. But that's the initial plan. Get through Argentina and all that sort. Yes, of yes. So and then that will be divided. Uh, Canadian high standard uh, divided highway. Music to the ears of many. Yes, absolutely, and makes it safer because that's, uh, as you know, there have been several accidents. Of late. Yes, of late, exactly. And then the other piece would be from Bishop Falls uh, to uh, to Grand Falls. And uh, that's uh, that's uh, been, again, an issue that's caused uh, concern for some of the motoring uh, public, so we're going to address that through, uh, through that uh, piece of work. The other thing we'll be doing uh, uh, as well this year is increasing our uh, um, or starting to increase our fencing around for, for moose crossings so we're going to add some more fencing uh, to allow that to happen and we want to expand uh, brush cutting right throughout the province as well. Where can people expect the fencing? Do you have well, we're going to look at the areas that have I guess have had the most uh, uh, accidents and uh, that's more on the east coast uh, on the Avalon in particular and we're just mapping that out uh, right now. So, a couple of pieces of news there. They're uh, going ahead with the divided highway. It remains a priority for them, and they've got the federal funding secured, so expect uh, a little bit more on that. And um, I don't know about you, Claudette, but any time I've driven across the island, as soon as you pass uh, Whitburn there and get onto the single-lane highway again, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I don't like the feeling. This doesn't feel as safe. It doesn't feel well, no. And not to change the topic or sound like a just beating an old topic, but I don't. I feel the same way on Peacekeeper's Way. Yes. I just wish that that would have been twinned. I understand nobody, you know, has money, whatever, but it, it just really bothers me. And every time I hear of a traffic accident, I just I think that as well. Yeah, and Peacekeepers for some reason it feels narrow. That's I don't exactly. know if it's because it drops off on either side yeah. there in, in portions of the I highway. I have the same feeling when I drive on it, and especially at night. I just I mean I. I'll drive anywhere, but I just feel that extra like pit in my stomach at night when I'm driving that road because it does feel narrow and because it's not twinned. Yeah, and a lot of the collisions that we do hear about uh, happen to be those, you know, horrific head-on type of collisions where somebody crosses for one reason or another, mm -hmm. crosses in, across yeah. that middle line, you know. I mean, I think the speed is 90, but 
you know, I mean, 90 on an untwinned or whatever the word is, just, yeah, it just gives my heart up in my throat all the time, no matter how people are driving. I have to say, yeah, since they put those passing lanes in on the Veterans Memorial, right. uh, that drive feels a lot more comfortable now. Yes, that was another area of concern, too, for me. You know, yeah. I, I mean, we're all, you would have to, anytime the weather is really bad or if it's really raining or snowing, you're hearing something about veterans or people stuck or people getting into an accident. And that's another area that I just, uh, w well, um, thankfully that has happened, yes. But they can never, you know, I know they can never do enough. Once you twin something, then something else needs to be done. It's a money thing. Yeah. Bring back, bring tolls in. <laughs> and that kidding. area near Grand Falls, Windsor, they've been talking about that, mm -hmm. uh, uh, having a divided highway there for ages between Bishop's Falls and, and Grand Falls, Windsor. They've been talking about that for ever so long. Um, and uh, it's nice that uh, they'll finally see some, um, some activ activity there. But, you know, we have have this unique circumstance here in Newfoundland and Labrador where the Trans-Canada runs, you know, directly through towns. Whitburn, Clarenville, yeah. Gander, Grand mm -hmm. Falls, Windsor, you know, and you go on and on and on right through to the West Coast. Uh, in a lot of other areas where you have those types of things, you have service roads where you pull off and then you can access. Because when I lived in Gander, my goodness, you, you, you know, coming off of Cooper Boulevard and trying to look out and see, okay, uh, go for it. And your you know, must and, have been strained. <laughs> and, of course, um, there has been a lot of accidents there, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and people slowing down to turn off and go into the um, gas stations and whatever and, you know, take advantage of the, the many amenities, especially if you're driving across the island. You're going to stop in many of these places to get a little snack that or are use the bathroom. literally on the side of the road. Yeah. Or use the bathroom or use the bathroom. Um <laughs> <laughs> Depending on who you, you are. Just did. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to go to a break now, Linda? <laughs> <laughs> that might be my hint to you, uh, Claudette, and to Noah, be on the ready. Uh, so, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Any, any improvements, any. I'm sure, are, uh, are much appreciated. But uh, could more be done? Yes. There's always room for improvement, as they say. So uh, we'll, if you have any thoughts on that, you're certainly welcome to give us a call. Well, speaking of room for improvement, uh, Marine Atlantic it has uh, taken uh, possession of its latest ferry, a great big old vessel. Uh, we're going to tell you a little bit about that when we come back after the break. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you news talk on your vocm and we are back well marine atlantic has accepted delivery of its brand new ferry the alice sunu but the vessel will have logged some pretty significant travel time before it starts its regular service this summer work is now underway to prepare the ferry, which was built by Stena Roro in China for its long journey to Canada's east coast. Marine Atlantic spokesperson Daryl Mercer joins me now. Well, Daryl, the um, Marine Atlantic now has um, accepted delivery of the Alice Sunu. Tell us, where is she now and what do you expect to happen next? 
So we're quite excited. Uh, this morning we accepted the uh, delivery of the Alice Anu. So it's currently uh, at the shipyard where it was constructed. Uh, it's going to, uh, over the next several days, go through some of its familiarization activities and then it'll depart uh, the shipyard for its journey to Canada. That's going to take uh, a period of time because uh, it's, it's quite the journey. It's, the shipyard is currently in China, so it has to tra traverse the ocean to get to Atlanta, Canada, and that's going to take several weeks. So we are excited with a lot of preparations in place right now, and uh, that vessel will enter service um, later this spring uh, in the June time period. So how do you get that ferry from the other side of the world? I mean, that's on the uh, across that vast Pacific Ocean. We've got another ocean on this side, uh, the Atlantic Ocean. So uh, which route is it taking? Well, we look at uh, safety as a as a big uh, big consideration when we're tra transferring a vessel from one part of the world to the other. And when you look at uh, the location of where the vessel is, it, there's three options that we could consider. Uh, we could go across the Pacific, but this is a, a passenger ferry. It's not designed like a bulk carrier for long ocean distances. And between uh, Asia and North America, there's not a lot of stops. So for refueling and other considerations, um, that was not a good option for us to look at. Then the Suez Canal is another option, but we know from some of the considerations that's taking place right there uh, now, um, certainly from a safety perspective, it wasn't uh, it wasn't our top choice. So the route that we're preparing for right now is down around the Cape of Good Hope um, around Africa. So that's going to take some additional time, but uh, again, um, it, it provides the opportunities that we need for refueling, uh, for stops that we need to make. So uh, it may take a little longer, but uh, safety and, and planning uh, considerations were certainly a part of this. So uh, all things uh, going well, when would you expect her to arrive either on the uh, in Newfoundland or, or Cape Breton? Right now, it's uh, it, we're expecting it to arrive in Atlantic Canada in the April time frame. It's it's premature to give an exact date right now because uh, obviously, as as you're moving through, you may encounter some weather systems. You may have a stop that you need to take on extra fuel. So, uh, April is what we're looking at. Um, you know, we're a couple of months away, but that's that's uh, the type of journey that you'd experience coming from Asia to North America, especially going down around the Cape of Good Hope in Africa. That adds a little bit of extra distance to the uh, to the crossing. But uh, we're quite excited. It's uh, a couple of months is, is not a long period of time, and uh, we've got a lot of preparations to make to, uh, to bring that vessel into service. And we're very excited, and I think our customers are going to be really excited about what that new vessel will offer as well. And when will she come into service? Right now, uh, it's it's going to be the June time frame. The Argentia service starts in mid-June. We're probably going to bring it into service uh, in advance of that for, uh, for several crossings. But... Uh, Right now, we're planning for the Argentia service during the summer, and in the fall, winter, and spring periods, it'll operate between Port Basque and North Sydney. So that's our, our current plan, because once it arrives in Canada uh, in April, there's a, there's a number of familiarization activities that we have to do with our crew members. Uh, we have to put the vessel through uh, all of our ports to, uh, to, to familiarize with the docking infrastructure, those types of things. So there is a process, but uh, we're quite confident that that vessel will be ready to enter service for passengers in June. And is she being added to the fleet, or is she bumping another one out? So the Alisuna uh, right now is going to replace the Atlantic Vision. The Atlantic Vision, uh, we're working on the dates as to when the Atlantic Vision will uh, will leave our service. Uh, we'll try to line those dates up with the Alisuna's arrival. Um, and, of course, 
the owners will make decisions as to what their future plans are with that vessel. But from our perspective, uh, we'll be a four-vessel fleet, um, and the customer should see no no break in service between uh, when the Atlantic Vision leaves and when the Alisuna arrives. And this is on a, a five-year leasing agreement, is that correct? Yeah, it's a five-year charter that we've signed with uh, Stena. So uh, over the next five years, we'll get to uh, experience that vessel on our service. And similar to what we did with the Blue Petites and the Highlanders, we leased those vessels for a five-year period. They, they worked out really well for our service. So at the end of that five-year period, we purchased the two vessels. We had the same option with the Alisunu. If it comes to our service and it's a good fit and works well, then we have the option to buy. And the opposite as well. If, if, if it doesn't work well for our service, then, then we have the option to return. But uh, right now, we're very hopeful that this is going to be a long-term vessel for our fleet. Uh, it's very exciting. It offers many different amenities for customers. And environmentally, it uh, offers a number of different uh, options that will reduce our carbon footprint. Uh, it, there's also measures that are going It's going to reduce our, our noise from an underwater perspective that will assist with uh, marine life, so there's not much of an impact on that as well. So the features that are presented, I think, are going to be really exciting for customers, and they'll, they'll get to experience that this summer. Daryl Mercer, thank you. Great. Thanks, Linda. So before she gets here, she's got quite the little journey ahead of her. Wow, Just imagine that is a long, long way. Yeah, along the coast of China, down through the South China Sea, across the uh, Indian Ocean to the coast of uh, Africa, down around the Cape of Good Hope, and back up through the Atlantic and across to. You sound like a captain, Linda. No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good. I mean, I was. I just wish people could see you because you looked like there was no map in front of you, and the way you did that was really impressive to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a little ge- bit of a geography nerd, yeah. I should tell you. Wow, you trace that invisible globe like no man's <laughs> business. What? Is, okay, all right. So what? here, here's how deeply nerdish I am. Oh, okay. Uh, this is like hardcore nerd. What? What is it? One of the things I used to play with when I was small... A globe. ...was maps. Maps? Yeah, I used to open up maps and just look, them, look at them and... Yeah. Oh, so I guess you don't like Siri or like go, when you're in the car, you don't say, hey, Google, take me to such and no, such. No, no, it's got to be visual for me. Yeah. Uh, you can, um, if you tell me it's across from the Red House on such and such a street... Yeah. Got it. Right. I got my map. I know how to get there. Um, but if, uh, yeah, if, you know, turn left at such and such, I'm like, no, yeah. I'm not, you're not, you're not going at it. Not computing. Um, not that I really want to admit this, but what I find difficult, I cannot get my head wrapped around downtown St. John's for driving because I'm not, I, I don't know. I just find. Claudette, there's two roads. No, I'm just saying like the one, one way here, one way there. And it's just the whole, and the Rollins Cross area, I just, I feel like I strike a blank every time I'm in that area. Maybe you should give me a tour. You, I have a feeling that you would be a great person to explain how to get around downtown St. John's. I don't know if I'd be able to explain it. Oh, that's okay. I'll <laughs> but you'd have on. to watch me. Yeah. Watch you in action Right? Downtown. I'd have to do it with my hands. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a coworker once tell me, uh, they said, can you express yourself if your hands were tied behind your back, would you still be able to... Oh, you are very animated. Yeah. But I, I love that. tend to... It, you're involved. It doesn't help. 
It doesn't help when you're on the radio. The thing over there. The microphones with your hands. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, if you hear the banging. (laughs) That's why I've got bruises all over my arms. You should come in. You need more protection. We need to wrap you up. Oh, man. (laughs) I, I cannot tell you the bruises I have on my body. From I can't tell you. I had a I had an incident the other day with a hockey bag. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I've told everybody in the newsroom this. I might as okay. well tell the audience. Okay. So, uh, son comes home from hockey. You know what it's like when you get in through the door. Most people's you just drop front everything. entryway is like blocked, blocked. with stuff. It's yeah, just, you drop or, it and go. Yeah. So, uh, we've got a bunch of people coming in the house with their wet boots on, trying to get around each other. Mm-hmm. And my son's hockey bag is in the middle. And he's trying to, he, he had to wear his skates because his shoes got wet. Anyway, blah, blah, blah. So, anyway, the the hockey bag is sitting there in everybody's way and we're trying to get in off the deck to get into the house anyway so i grab the hockey bag and i'm like okay and you've seen me move around i don't tend to just you know stroll i no, on you're on a kind mission. of half on a run most All of the, the time. time yeah so <laughs> i take this hockey bag it's got a solid bottom right it's like yeah. a hard bottom right so i take this hockey bag haul it in my two hands and i go down the hallway just to put it in the living room for the time being to get it out of the way and i brought up solid in the door frame <laughs> just like bagoon you know <laughs> and i got two bruises going across each way each of my legs it's just like someone took a bat to me <laughs> Well, you got to stop being so animated. <laughs> i got to slow down. As you do. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you about the one I got on my butt from when I backed into the doorknob. Oh, man. Well, that will come after the break. We'll talk about that body part. <laughs> You're listening to News Talk. <laughs> You're listening to News Talk on VOCM. <laughs> well, um, we were just on that marine theme with Marine Atlantic. And uh, in case you haven't noticed, I love this story about the shipwreck at Cape Ray. So when we come back after the break, we're going to reprise a, an interview I did with uh, Neil Burgess of the Shipwreck Preservation Society, who's always a joy to speak and listen to. Uh, when we come back right after this. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. And we are back. Well, a mystery ship believed to date to the 1800s, capturing the imagination of history buffs right across the province. The wreckage of a massive wooden ship washed up unexpectedly on the beach at Cape Ray on January 20th. And immediately, uh, people in the area knew they were dealing with something pretty special. Well, Neil Burgess of the Shipwreck Preservation Society joined an archaeological team for a trip to Cape Ray on the weekend. And here's what he had to say. So, Neil Burgess, what did you manage to find out about this thing? I mean, you've seen lots of pictures. Was it different in real life? Yeah, it was really impressive in real life. I mean, I didn't appreciate how big uh, this piece of the ship's hull was. It was probably about, I don't know, 90 or 100 feet long, the keel, and great big pieces of uh, wood for the hull planking. Uh, They must have been four inches thick and about nine inches across. Um, And the keel itself was um, probably about 14 inches by 14 inches. It was was a really big piece of wood. And then there was um, four, what we call knees, uh, kind of uh, right angled uh, pieces of wood. 
um, that uh, were used for uh, different purposes around the boat, but basically for attaching uh, like the hull to the deck or at the stern of the boat near where the rudder was, um, there were stern posts going vertically. Anyway, these were great big pieces of wood. Um, uh, they were about, I don't know, nine feet long and six feet across. And yeah, it was, I, I was just really impressed with, uh, how many different kinds of wood and how much wood went into the construction of this ship. So knowing what you know uh, about uh, shipwrecks and, and different types of vessels uh, over history, what does that point to in your mind? Well, it points to a, a ship that's more than 100 feet long, uh, a big sailing ship. The fasteners that were holding the planks together, some of them were made out of wooden dowels that are called tree nails or trunnels, about a foot long and about an inch in diameter. And then there were copper rods that were the same size but made of pure copper. And then there were a few um, brass spikes that were like a foot long and about half an inch in diameter. Um, and all those construction details tell me that this wreck is probably from the 1800s. That's my best guess right now. But we've taken uh, uh, several different types of wood samples that we're hoping we can use, uh, get experts to help us date uh, when the ship was built. And they do that by looking at the patterns of tree rings in the timbers. And we took some cores uh, that the experts can look at. Is there anything uh, that you saw that would suggest where, uh, you know, its origins, maybe American, Spanish, French, British, Canadian? Well, what was, what was really clear from some of the timbers that were on shore were they were really large, like I said, you know, 14 inches or 10 inches across, and they were made of oak, some of them. And there's no oak trees like that in Newfoundland. So the, the ship definitely wasn't made here, and I doubt it was made in the Maritimes. So that means that it was made in Europe, or it might have been made in the eastern United States. But um, looking at the ship traffic coming by Newfoundland, most of it was British in the 1800s. Uh, some of it might have been French, but not a lot. And a few, a few ships would have been American coming up to the Gulf of St. Lawrence. But by and far, by far and away, the most uh, uh, ships that were coming by Cape Ray were British. So I guess the job of trying to identify this thing is, uh, in part, I suppose, up to you and other people with a great interest in this. Um, any ideas? Well, what we're hoping to do is if we can get a, a reasonably accurate date for uh, the wood on the ship, then we can make a pretty good guess on when the ship was built. And then we can start looking at, you know, the decades following that for which ships were wrecked on the coast there, and then start looking at how big they were. Um, we might get really lucky from the wood samples and be able to tell what country the ship was built in, and that would help us narrow it down further, perhaps. So we're hoping maybe we can get the, uh, the identity of the ship down to a short list of maybe three or five ships, 
And if we're really lucky, we might be able to narrow it down to one and actually put a name to the wreck. And I'm sure the people of the Southwest Coast are keenly interested in this, particularly if there's a, a story involved rather than just something that ran aground and, and you know, nothing more was heard of it, uh, particularly if it was, you know, if there was tragedy involved or loot or whatever. Yeah, there's a lot of oral history down uh, in the southwest coast area about the ships that were wrecked there. So if we're able to put a name to this, then we'll be able to know where the ship came from, who was on the ship, uh, what it was carrying. A lot of the ships coming from uh, Britain and France in the 1800s were bringing immigrants from Europe to settle in Canada or perhaps in Newfoundland. Uh, and we'll be able to uh, fill in a lot of the missing gaps in the story of this ship and the people that were on it. And it, like you said, you know, how many people were lost when the ship was wrecked and did anyone survive and where did they end up? So that we could really flesh out the story for this wreck if we're able to put a name to the ship. Neil Burgess, I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks a lot. Uh, so that's Neil Burgess of the uh, Shipwreck Preservation Society. And I don't know if you've uh, been following the uh, Cape Ray uh, Facebook page, Claudette, but they've been putting up amazing pictures and um, stories. And some people are speculating about which ship it could be. Anyway, it's it's really taken off. Yeah, with the uh, folklore. I did. I, I saw the picture, like a video of of it, but just just one so i haven't had the opportunity to look at the stories or anything like that so it'll be interesting to know like he said he doesn't think it's made in newfoundland might be europe might be somewhere else well if it's that big and i um, i mean some of the pictures of these they call them knees but they would be those big like ribs i guess mm-hmm. that would be inside the ship like holding it kind of together uh some of the pictures of those i mean they're just absolutely massive pieces of wood there's nothing gross like that here in newfoundland and labrador so it's from away somewhere uh, somewhere with uh, warmer climes and bigger trees. So <laughs> story that's left to be told. Yeah, for sure. And you know what? The uh, the people in the Cape Ray area. I mean, that area. Well, they they just saw the worst of uh, nature in the last little while with uh, Hurricane Fiona. Um, it's not that far, of course, from. Um, uh, Port of Basque, and um, you know they're really hoping now that uh, with all of this attention on this ship, and there's nothing that grabs the attention and the imagination like a shipwreck. I think um, they're really hoping that this is going to see a little bit of an added boon for the area. It's right across from uh, J.T. Cheeseman Provincial Park, so there's that. Right, you can stay there and maybe catch a glimpse of it from your camper. I don't know <laughs> if you know what I mean. Uh, so um, yeah, but. Remember Remember the, um, oh my gosh, the Luba Vorlova? I love that name. I just like listened to it when it was in the newscast. <laughs> <laughs> the Lubov Orlova, uh, sitting on the the um, harbor apron there for years, uh, uh, you know, virtually abandoned. The poor crew there, people were bringing them bread. Remember all that? I do remember. Yeah. <clears throat> and uh, so then finally, uh, they they got uh, 
these poor guys home and uh, they took that ship out and it was listing on the on the harbor front forever so long was almost going to sink right there in the harbor and no she uh, she broke her uh, towing line out in the Atlantic and the rest as they say is history she could still be drifting out there today some people think so <laughs> She's she's gone, I'd say, but um, but it was uh, you know that whole suggestion that there were, it was full of rats that really that, yeah. <laughs> when the UK media got a hold of that oh boy and that it was the rat ship uh, anyway so there's uh, it, I saw within the last couple of years anyway there's some ship uh, similarly exposed on the beach somewhere in California on the coast of California and a lot of people were saying oh it's the Lubav Orlova on the coast of California <laughs> now do you want me to start gesturing yes, again on, on the globe <laughs> like how that probably wouldn't be the case how that you know how that uh, ghost ship managed to snake her way <laughs> through the Panama Canal. Anyway, um, so <laughs> mysteriously driven by rat power or something. I don't oh, know. Oh, there's a cartoon in there, Linda. There's a cartoon in yes. that. There's a meme. Uh, there you go. Newfoundland turnip. You're welcome. Um, <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, it really captures the imagination. I imagine we'll hear more about this. And hopefully, like I said, a little boost for the people in Cape Ray. And Newfoundland is always like, well, we hope this is going to bring more people in. <laughs> and, and it could very well, depending on how much they can get. Because like you said, it, I think it was yesterday, it's in the surf, not surf zone or yeah. whatever that zone was where it's really hard to get at. Yeah. And it's waterlogged and it's absolutely enormous. So mm -hmm. it's not going to be like uh, get a backhoe and haul that up. Right. You, it's not going to happen. So at best, maybe they might be able to get a few pieces off of it because mm -hmm. she's starting to break up there now, unfortunately. It's sad to see this and say, oh my gosh, it's been preserved for all this time and then to see it destroyed in front mm -hmm. of your eyes. But that's nature. That's nature. Uh, anyway, we'll be back tomorrow. Do join us then. Thanks for listening, everyone. Bye-bye for now.